Last week's report from the Pentagon on defense industrial-based competitiveness didn't sit well with services contractors. It recommended more merger oversight, modernizing intellectual property practices, and getting more companies into the dip, among other things. Here with what the report might also have said, the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. Stephanie, good to have you back. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. And the rebuttal on this from the Professional Services Council seemed to say that the Defense Department, in looking at the DIB, should not forget that the DIB is also part of the general economy, and maybe things shouldn't be bent quite so far to the advantage of the Pentagon. That's a very fair assessment. I would say, Tom, that although we are the Professional Services Council representing more than 400 government contractors, not all of them are in the defense industrial base. Some of them are working with civilian agencies or international development. I would also say that we've talked at length with some of our, I'll call them sister associations, so those who represent more than just services, but also products. And the consensus was this report entitled State of Competition Within the Defense Industrial Base didn't define the problem it was trying to address. There was no clarity in exactly what the issue is. Now, this report wasn't in a vacuum. It was mandated by the White House in an executive order that came out just a year ago on promoting competition in the American economy. What is fascinating about that is this report from the Defense Department seems to ignore a couple of factors, one of which is when you're talking about strengthening merger oversight, they are looking at it from a customer perspective, what happens when their defense industrial base consolidates and what happens to pricing and and availability. What they don't acknowledge is that we are in a global marketplace. And so when we look at what is healthy for the American economy, You have to not only just look at what is happening with the Defense Department and what its available, you know, market share might be, but also what's going on in the worldwide national security arena. And that report really doesn't address what's going on from that perspective. In addition, and I just mentioned how, you know, some of our member companies work not just with the Department of Defense, but with other agencies. The Department of Defense ignores the fact that in many cases, although they seem to be fixated on monopolies, is the monopsonistic tendency of the Department of Defense. In many cases, for some companies, the Defense Department is the market. So if you're talking about distortionary factors coming into the economy, you have to consider the responsibility that DOD bears in what that marketplace looks like and what requirements, design requirements, technical requirements, staffing requirements, and then what happens on the back end after they've gotten the contract. It is a relatively monopsonistic market for many of these companies. And looking at DOD placing the blame on market consolidation misses the point. Yeah, well, congratulations on saying monopolistic. Uh, I'm not sure I could say it the first time around, but they have been, to their defense, I mean, no pun intended, they have been seeing this consolidation go back to, you know, when Jack Northrop brought out Leroy Grumman. I think they said from 51, you know, airframe and platform manufacturers some years ago to only five today. I mean, from their point of view, it doesn't look like it's going in the right direction. It's true, but I think... If you look at what they're comparing here is 51 was the number I think they used down to five in the span of a few decades. But those were major weapon systems. And I would argue if you're looking at major weapon systems or platforms, how many shipyards do you really need when you buy a nuclear powered aircraft carrier once every 10 years or so? I mean, when you're looking at the buying power of the Department of Defense and when they look at the product side of it, You know, you're really looking at what can manufacturing sustain and what is viable for that business. 
On the services side, you also see some consolidation, but that I don't believe nearly to the extent you've seen it in the products and the manufacturing side. And that's why we at Professional Services Council wanted to take a strong stance that mergers are not bad. I don't argue against oversight. I think responsible oversight is essential. But when I see headlines that say consolidation is the issue, I think you've misstated the problem statement here. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And I guess this is maybe unresolvable, and we'll see what they actually do about it, although you do have a pretty active antitrust, anti-mechanism with this administration. So it's hard to see how much more consolidation could take place, even if the companies wanted to. And in the meantime, you're getting lots of reports about how hard the defense industrial base, everybody, is getting hit with cyber as the whole Russian situation heats up. We did receive, when I say we, it's mostly defense contractors, received an alert last week on February 16th from the National Security Agency talking about Russian uh, tendencies and, and motives for hacking into defense contractors, particularly those who hold classified contracts, but not limited to those. And so they are trying to obtain sensitive U.S. defense information and technology And, you know, this was a fairly extensive cyber advisory that went out. It went out across the government, but really focused on defense contractors. When you overlay that with what the Defense Department is trying to do with CMMC 2.0, or that's the Cyber Maturity Model Certification Process, they've just overhauled it or revamped it. They've consolidated, to use that word again, categories or levels of certification. We are still waiting to get a few more details on this whole certification process, understanding the rollout, understanding what companies will have to do. On that front, I would also argue that the Defense Department systems themselves are not immune to hacking. And so when we look at you know, how contractors have to protect sensitive information and technology, I would say that is one side of the coin. The other side is obviously how the government itself is going to protect information and technology. And I think this is going to require back and forth engagement, collaboration, and really listening to each other in this domain. And did the NSA offer any remedies or tell people what to do about it? Sometimes like the cybersecurity and infrastructure, well, not sometimes, every week, CISA sends out detailed, like how to do the password better on your Cisco router, that kind of thing. They did offer several pieces of their advisory and what to look out for, but also say that the government is trying hard, I believe, to put different kinds of tools and assistance in place to help various levels of companies. I would say with this Biden-Harris administration's push for small business, we do see a lot of tools being put in place to help small businesses with cyber hygiene. Uh, There is a project called Project Spectrum at the Department of Defense that helps small businesses with their cyber hygiene. You know, the adversary here gets a vote, right? And nothing is going to be foolproof or Russia-proof or whatever-proof. But I would say that, you know, tools and, and assistance can be put in place. But I go back to really needing to collaborate with the companies that face these things on a daily basis. The threat used to be from near peers that we could define the threat. We could have the ramp up time to build capabilities and capacities to counter that threat. For cyber, it's a different game. I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of attacks per day. And that really, when you're looking at more than 200,000 companies in the defense industrial base, it's a lot of attacks and you're never going to be perfect. I think tools and assistance and advice from the government to the contractors would be helpful in any form or fashion it comes over. And while we're talking about government advisories, there's still another report expected this week from Defense on the supply chain. And what will that talk about? 
So, Tom, earlier we mentioned an executive order on competition. There was a second executive order on securing America's supply chains, and the Department of Defense received a tasking to look at sensitive, vulnerable areas, building on previous reports. This is another area where the Department of Defense has solicited industry feedback on things like forgings, castings, hypersonics, batteries, critical enablers, which are a lot of the services that our companies provide. And I think when you look at the whole of what we expect from an industry perspective in the report, I'm hoping that it reflects that feedback provided to DOD. I will tell you the report that came out last week on competition doesn't make me positive about what we see in this report, but I'm going to withhold judgment until I actually see the words on the paper. All right. It's like looking at the class picture. The first face you look for is your own, and then you know it came out okay. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, Tom, it's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to the Dib Report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check out the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.